Today on Categorical Imperatives, we will be doing the third and final video in my series about the Supreme Court case, McCulloch v. Maryland. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to this program, I especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. And, as I mentioned in the beginning, today we are going to be doing the third and final episode uh, in what is part of my larger ongoing series that I call Today in Supreme Court History, covering uh, notable Supreme Court cases. Today we're going to be talking about McCulloch versus Maryland, and as I mentioned, this has been a three-part series. This is the final one in the series. So, uh, let's take a look back real quick, just so you can get an idea of what you missed, or to re refresh your memory about what we talked about in the last couple of videos, if you haven't watched them. And if you hadn't yet, I, I strongly advise that you do. I really made these in a way where I, I'm assuming the person watching this has watched part one and two, and it'll be a lot more difficult for you to follow along if you haven't. So uh, I'll put links to those uh, down in the description. But just to refresh our memories here. Part one was an introduction to McCulloch's history and proceedings, and I essentially had uh, drafted my own case brief for this and just kind of gave a quick, clean, sort of, like, objective version of what the case was about, uh, the proceedings, the opinion, all that stuff. Part two dealt with the original meaning of the necessary and proper clause and how that clause was utilized and interpreted by the Marshall Court in the McCulloch case. Now, in this case in general, there were two major questions that arose, and most people usually only ever really discuss the first one, which is the constitutionality of Congress's ability to charter a bank. Now, that has been thoroughly covered. What we haven't talked about at all, though, is the second key constitutional question in this case, and so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And that revolves around the idea, is the uh, tax that the state of Maryland tried to levy against the Second Bank of the United States a constitutional tax? Now, answering this question created a uh, legal doctrine with one of the most lame, bland, unimportant sounding names in the whole of constitutional jurisprudence, which is the Intergovernmental Tax Immunity Doctrine. But don't let this stupid name fool you. It's actually an incredibly important and interesting uh, concept to know. Uh, and it's one that most people never really talk about, which is why I'm excited to get to this today. Uh, this is bound to be the part of the video where uh, if there was anything about McCulloch versus Maryland you didn't know before watching my videos, it would probably be this stuff here. And it's some of the most interesting stuff, in my opinion. Um, so, we'll be discussing... All of that, 
and we will be talking about why this case has such a negative reputation among constitutional conservatives as being a case that created uh, sort of like the great, the first great big government case of unlimited federal powers. We will be discussing why uh, that reputation is largely an unfair one, though not entirely. And we will be talking about the destructive legacy of McCulloch that came, not from the case itself, but from the way that it has been hijacked in the 20th century by the progressives to make many aspects of the government essentially unlimited through misconstruction and abuse of the original meaning of the Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, often in conjunction with a very selective reinterpreting of this case. And when you pair all that with their reading of the Commerce Clause, you do end up, at least in their eyes, with a virtually unlimited federal government of implied powers whose only sort of constitutional limit is Congress can do whatever the hell they damn well please in most circumstances. Now, by the end of this video, uh, I think you will understand why uh, not only myself, but a lot of our, some of our, our most consequential and, uh, uh, I don't know, eminent, I guess you could say, uh, constitutional scholars uh, consider this to be the most important of all Supreme Court cases. And that's, uh, I know, scholars such as uh, Rob Nadelson, uh, Randy Barnett, Josh Blackman, David Schwartz, and many, many more uh, are of that opinion. So let's start out talking about the constitutionality of Maryland's tax. Now, McCulloch's analysis of Maryland's tax is even weaker than its insouciant discussion of the constitutional issues the federal statute raised. Much of the analysis is devoting to refuting an extreme claim advanced by Maryland's lawyers, according to which the states have an absolute and unfettered constitutional right to tax the federal government. Now, Marshall ably refuted this theory and rightly refused to adopt a doctrine whose logic would leave this nation's fisc at the mercy of hostile or irresponsible state governments. It does not follow, however, that Maryland's tax on the Baltimore branch was prohibited. Now, some passages in McCulloch suggest that any state tax on a federal instrumentality is inherently unconstitutional, presumably even if authorized by Congress. But no constitutional provision says or even implies that such a general ban exists. And it would border on absurdity to say that Congress is powerless to authorize a state tax on a federal instrumentality. Perhaps... Marshall only meant to advance the more modest and plausible claim that the statute establishing the bank forbade the states to tax it. Now, the Supremacy Clause provides that the Constitution and federal statutes are the supreme law of the land by which the judges are bound. Of course, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. That means a state law may not override 
any provision of the federal constitution or a valid federal statute uh, valid under the constitution of course that is uh, if asked congress might have banned a tax like maryland's or it might have acquiesced to such tax but congress was not asked and therefore it did not answer now marshall seemed to think that it was obvious that Maryland's tax violated the statute establishing the bank. However, that conclusion was not even close to being evident. The statute did not address the permissibility of state taxes one way or the other, and Marshall offered no argument for inferring that this tax was forbidden, nor would have been easy to do. Maryland taxed its own bank separately from out-of-state banks using somewhat different tax structures, the default tax on Maryland's banks applied to their capital stock, while the default tax on other banks applied to certain transactions. As an alternative to the default tax, all banks could satisfy their obligations with a specified lump sum payment. Now, the more important point here, of course, involves the absolute rather than the comparative effect of Maryland's tax on the national bank. And there is some evidence on this question. At least one director of the National Bank apparently thought that sound policy would dictate yielding to the tax. Now, when the bank challenged Maryland statute, the lawsuit was apparently an amicable controversy. So, if the tax actually posed a real threat, one would expect that the bank or the Treasury Department would have planned, in the event it was upheld in court, to ask Congress to expressly preempt it, as Congress certainly could have done. On the contrary, Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford believed that a bill to exempt the Baltimore branch from a state tax would have actually been defeated in Congress. The assumption that Maryland's tax was a threat to the National Bank is a proposition for which Marshall offers no evidence because it's likely false. Now, the practical effect of McCulloch was to create through judicial fiat a law that Congress had not enacted and possibly would have refused to enact. This form of judicial government is now conducted under the rubric of what is known as obstacle preemption. This is an interpretive device through which the Supreme Court enforces policies that the justices like to imagine the legislature would enact if asked, but which it had not enacted. Now, obstacle preemption has since become a standard routing in the activist repertoire of the modern court which in no way excuses the McCulloch Court for exercising a power that did not belong to it. The Supreme Court, not Maryland, in this instance, is the one who violated the Constitution. Now, apart from the unconstitutionality of the ruling in McCulloch, its scope is thrown into doubt by some confusing dicta. The opinion's last paragraph draws an unexplained distinction between a forbidden tax on the bank's operations on the one hand and a, per a permissible tax on bank property on the other. 
That part of the holding reads that this declaration of unconstitutionality does not extend to a tax paid by the real property of the bank in common with the other real property within the state, nor to a tax imposed on the interest which the citizens of Maryland may hold in this institution in common with other property of the same description throughout the state. But this is a tax on the operation of banks and is consequently a tax on the operation of an instrument employed by the government of the Union to carry its powers into execution, and such a tax must be unconstitutional. So, does in common with mean that a state can tax federal entities so long as it also taxes other similar entities? If so, Maryland's tax should have been upheld because it did not tax, or if, excuse me, because it did tax other banks as well. And this is a fact that Marshall never mentioned. Uh, if not, is it because the bank's operations were constitutionally different from its real property and the propriety interest of Marylanders? And why would that be? And are these the only objects a state may tax? And what about the bank's movable property? and its employees' salaries. Where do they fall? Or, when the ruling says, in common with, do they mean uniformly with? Because uniform tax rates can affect different objects of taxation differently, even when those objects of the same kind, uh, and it may be impossible to tell in advance what those effects will be, and what would happen if a state imposed a uniform tax rate on the operations of all banks or on the real estate while separately subsidizing the state chartered banks but not the national bank. Now would that violate whatever principle of uniformity Marshall had in mind he didn't explain? And how should one go about answering these questions and many others for which there are simply no answer? So, Marshall avoided hard questions about the bank's statute of constitutionality by deferring to Congress's judgment about the scope of his own powers, but he refused to leave the hard questions about the desirability of banning all state taxes on the bank or tolerating some of them when the Constitution clearly left those questions squarely in Congress's hands. Judging from the fulsome uh, enconiums that have swelled McCulloch's reputation over the past few centuries, I think the irony is apparently easy to overlook. Next, we're going to be talking about the role of judicial review in McCulloch versus Maryland. I know most people think of Marbury as Madison as a great judicial review case, and in fact, McCulloch versus Maryland is just as important in the development of judicial review as a doctrine as was McCulloch. So that's what we're going to be getting into next. Now this evidence suggests that while it is a mistake to equate uh, the term necessary in the necessary and proper clause with convenient, neither was it as stringent of a standard 
as was connoted by some of the other terms, if you remember back to videos one and two, that were commonly used to describe, uh, they were used as synonyms for uh, necessary, which were words like indispensably or absolutely necessary. Instead, the original meaning of necessity that came from the case creates a requirement of a degree of a means ends fit somewhere between these two extremes. Now, considerations of constitutional construction also argue against a looser standard of uh, the term convenient, equating necessity with a mere convenience or expediency. This view, commonly but perhaps mistakenly attributed to Marshall, would make the application of any such standard as far as judicial, judicial review is concerned a matter of policy, policy properly left to the discretion of the legislature. On the other hand, if one adopts the view uh, that was espoused by Jefferson and Madison, the necessary means that a given law must be incidental and closely connected to an enumerated power, then this is a matter of constitutional principle and within the purview of the courts to assess. Thus, the true debate then is whether the original meaning of necessary was narrow enough to be enforced by the courts or so open-ended that it became instead completely within the discretion of the legislature. And if the necessary and proper clause was generally thought to be justifiable, this further supports a conclusion that the public meaning of the term equated with something more like convenience than utility. Now, there is some textual support for this proposition. Uh, like all other limits on congressional power, should be judicially enforceable. First is the fact that the clause says that the laws shall be necessary and proper. Now, we talked about this last week. In ordinary life, shall sometimes refers merely to a statement about what someone intends to do in the future. However, if we look at a 1785 edition of the Dictionary of the English Language uh, published by Samuel Johnstone, it notes that the explanation of shall, which foreigners and provincials confound with, will uh, instead equate with shall or must. Then, as now, in legal discourse, the term shall is nearly always a mandatory command. As used in statutes, contracts, and the like, this word is generally meant to be imperative or mandatory. So, when a law creates discretion, it uses the word may instead. So, may could also be defined according to Johnson's Dictionary as to be. So, the authors of the Constitution were very careful to use shall and may properly. This strongly suggests that the injunction to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper was not discretionary on the part of the lawmaking authority to whom it directed Congress. It is mandatory like all other mandatory provisions and is presumptively enforceable by the other branches of the government, including by the courts, at liberty to be permitted or be allowed now, many other examples where this discretion of review is explicitly provided in the Constitution's concern is not the allocation of power, 
but instead the application of a standard. So for example, Article 2, Section 3, Clause 1 specifies that the President shall, from time to time, give the Congress information on the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measure as, she, as he shall judge necessary and expedient, and that he may adjourn them to take such time as he think proper. Also, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 states that Congress may vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper. And Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 states that each state shall appoint electors in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. And likewise, in Article 5, it says that Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to the Constitution. Years later, in his critique of Marshall's opinion in McCulloch, James Madison argued against an interpretation of necessary that takes the clause out of the province of the courts. Does not the court also relinquish by their doctrine all control on the legislative exercise of unconstitutional powers? Madison asked in an objecting manner to interpreting necessary as merely expedient or convenient in part because doing so would place the matter quote beyond the reach of judicial cognizance by what handle could the courts take hold of that case so that exercise of judicial review under the Necessary and Proper Clause, were thought subject to uh, judicial review that was also assumed by the author of the first scholarly work on the Constitution, St. George Tucker, who was a professor of law at William & Mary College, one of the nation's leading judges in the general court in Virginia, and the American editor of Blackstone's Commentaries, the most influential and authoritative legal work of the period. So in the 1803 edition of the Commentaries, he attached an appendix discussing the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. This work was drawn from the notes of his lectures given throughout the 1790s and contemporaneous with uh, his early contemporaneous with the earliest years of the Constitution. So Tucker's account of uh, judicial review of necessary and proper clause uh, is nearly identical to that of Madison and Jefferson and to the views expressed in the ratification conventions. The plain import of this clause is that Congress shall have all the incidental or instrumental powers necessary and proper for carrying into execution all their expressed powers, whether they be vested in the government of the United States more collectively or in several department or offices thereof, if neither it neither enlarges any power specifically granted, nor is it a grant of new powers to Congress, but merely a declaration for the removal of all uncertainty by the means of carrying into execution, those otherwise granted are all included in the grant. 
and Tucker was gravely concerned about the use of this clause to justify an unwarranted expansion of congressional powers. He says, but notwithstanding this remarkable security against misconstruction, a design has been indicated to expound these phrases in the Constitution so as to destroy the effect of the particular enumeration of powers by which it explains and limits them which must have fallen under the observation by those who have attended to the course of public transactions and in a footnote he adds uh, witness the act for establishing a bank now Tucker then offered the following method of construing the clause and other powers of Congress. Whenever, therefore, a question arises concerning the constitutionality of a particular power, the first question is whether the power be expressed in the Constitution. If it be, the question is decided. If it be not expressed, the next inquiry must be whether it is properly an incident of an expressed power and necessary to its execution. If it be, it may be exercised by Congress. If it be not, Congress cannot exercise it. This construction of the words necessary and proper, he contended, is not only uh, consonant with that which prevailed during the discussions and ratifications of the Constitution, but is absolutely necessary to maintain their consistency with the peculiar character of the government as possessed of particular and defined powers only, not of the general and indefinite powers vested in ordinary governments. And he finished by saying, McCulloch is one of a handful, or, or, excuse me, this, this, I'm sorry, this is not from St. George Tucker. This came from James Madison after the McCulloch case, excuse me. But McCulloch said, in light of all this, that uh, uh, the handful of foundational decisions of the Supreme Court that are automatically cited as original sources for the propositions of constitutional law that they contain. But McCulloch has further and an even rarer distinction of being treated as providing a full and complete interpretation of a particular clause of the Constitution, that is, the analysis of the Necessary and Proper Clause. And this analysis seems to have been historically begun and ended with McCulloch. Alright, now moving on to the destructive legacy of McCulloch versus Maryland. So, McCulloch versus Maryland, as I've already stated a number of times, is arguably the Supreme Court's most influential opinion and certainly one of its most celebrated. In a 1919 biography of its author, uh, Alvage Beveridge wrote, In effect, John Marshall in McCulloch rewrote the fundamental law of the nation, or perhaps it may be more accurate to say that he made a written instrument of a living thing, he made a written instrument a living thing, capable of growth, capable of keeping pace with the advancement of the American people and ministering to their changing necessities. 
the greatest of Marshall's treatises on government may well be entitled The Vitality of the Constitution. And later, Justice Felix Frankfurter concurred with James Bradley Bayer's assessment that the conception of the nation that Marshall derived from the Constitution and set forth in McCulloch versus Maryland is his greatest single judicial performance. More recently, an academic discussion of canonical cases began with a legal document that generates no contention at all. John Marshall's opinion in McCulloch versus Maryland, which expressed an expansive view of national power under the U.S. Constitution. As these and countless other commentators have recognized, McCulloch's importance arises from his doctrine of implied congressional powers, which has been applied even to constitutional amendments adopted decades after the McCulloch decision. Reversed, er, revered, excuse me, revered, though it may be now, Chief Justice Marshall's opinion actually provoked quite a hostile commotion when it was issued, so much so that he was moved to defend it in a series of anonymous newspaper essays. The opinion remained controversial for many years, and it deserves to become controversial once again. The issue in McCulloch was whether the Second Bank of the United States could legally refuse to pay the tax that the state of Maryland had imposed on his Baltimore branch. After deciding Congress had implied constitutional powers to incorporate a bank, the court held that Maryland's tax was unconstitutional. Now, both conclusions, as I stated repeatedly, are debatable. But the opinion was unanimous. Now, Marshall, as he often does, articulated an elegant and defensible legal standard for assessing constitutional exercise of implied powers, but his application of the standard, which is also very typical of Marshall, uh, was extremely lax. Subsequently, McCulloch was used to justify expanding federal powers far beyond its proper constitutional bounds. And although Marshall's opinion lends itself to this use, the decision need not and should not be relied on as precedent for such expansion. Now, McCulloch's uh, bicentennial uh, was an apt occasion recently uh, for reevaluating its indisputably significant contribution to American jurisprudence. The court rarely rules that Congress has exceeded its powers except when it violates an individual right that the justices have selected for enforcement from the Constitution or have exuberantly, exuberantly imputed to it. From the New Deal through the mid-1990s, the justices signaled that the Commerce Clause gives Congress authority to regulate virtually everything in human life that is not protected by one of those judicially favored individual rights. Thus, if a small business buys and sells products across state lines, that's all it takes to justify congressional regulations of labor relations in that country. 
the federal government can decide how much workers must be paid, how long they may work, so long as their employer produces goods destined for another state. The commerce power can be used to ban racial discrimination in any small business that uses products from another state or serves customers from other states. Limits can be put on the crops a farmer may grow, even for his or her own use at home. If such use uh, by enough farmers could affect the price of farm products in other states. This is the Wicker's aggregation principle. And a local loan shark can be prosecuted under federal laws because some other loan sharks belong to gangs, gangs that have interstate operations. Now, good luck finding anyone who does much of anything that is not also done by someone in some other interstate enterprise or that could not affect in any way interstate commerce if enough people did it. Now, uh, one case that I have talked about before uh, on the show here, and in fact, I'll link it in a little card in the corner right about now is 1995's Supreme Court decision in U.S. v. Lopez. Now, this shocked the legal world by finding that Congress had exceeded its Commerce Clause authority when it criminalized the possession of a firearm in or, in or near a school. Now, the court concluded that the law had nothing to do with commerce or any economic activity and that the conduct it regulated could not substantially affect interstate commerce through repetition elsewhere. Now, five years later, the court reviewed a statute that created a civil cause of action for victims of gender-motivated violence and held that Congress may not regulate violent criminal conduct slowly based on the aggregate effect of such conduct on interstate commerce. Now, Lopez did not purport to overrule any prior decisions, and the opinion raised more questions about the scope of the commerce power than it answered. But because the court had finally identified something that was beyond Congress's reach, many observers had hoped or feared that the decision was signaling a coming restoration of the principles of limited and enumerated federal powers. But it wouldn't take very long before such expectations would prove to have been misplaced. Now, Congress reenacted the gun-free school zone law, along with a new provision requir requiring prosecutors to prove that the firearm had, at some time, traveled in interstate commerce. Lopez had signaled that this was the one way for the legislature to convert a local activity into one that Congress could regulate, and the new statute has since been upheld. If an object acquires a magical property to subject anyone who possessed it to Congress's regulatory jurisdiction merely because the object, or even some component of that object, crossed state lines at some time in the past, the Constitution's principles of enumerated powers is 
not much more than a guideline for drafting statutes. Now, Congress has not yet reenacted the gender-motivated violence statute, but it apparently need only require that a plaintiff prove some interstate nexus. Perhaps the defendant has moved across state lines to attend college, or perhaps the tort was allegedly committed while he or she wore clothing manufactured in another state. Or perhaps he or she drove to the scene of the incident in an automobile containing parts manufactured out of state. In addition to the interstate nexus maneuver, Lopez also alluded to regulations forming an essential part of the larger regulation of economic activity in which the regulatory scheme could be undercut unless interstate activity is regulated. This was the basis on which a federal regulation controlling agricultural products grown for home consumption was upheld. Uh, this is from Gonzalez v. Rach. I've also made a video about this one. I'll link to that in a little card up in the corner right about now. And, anyways, uh, it, so it extended to it extended the doctrine by applying it to marijuana grown and consumed in a state where the government specifically authorized the use of plants for medical purposes. So far, the court has recognized only trivial or symbolic limits on the Commerce Clause's reach. In uh, National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sibelius, known as NFIB versus Sibelius, for example. Five justices, including Chief Justice John Roberts, concluded the Commerce Clause does not authorize Congress to force consumers to participate in commerce by purchasing specified health insurance policies that they do not want. But... The legal mandate to purchase specified insurance policies was characterized as a mere suggestion and that complying with the suggestion was something that they could constitutionally do. Thus, the limitation on Congress's power under the Commerce Clause turned out to be purely symbolic. Alright, in conclusion... Uh, in conclusion, I would argue that it was neither necessary nor proper for McCulloch to assume, without analysis, that all features of the Second Bank were necessary and proper. Nor was it necessary and proper for layer courts to adopt a Fisher-esque level of deference to the standard for judging the boundaries of congressional power. Like Marshall, all the current justices can say that the abstract principle of limited and enumerated powers is now universally admitted. But the legacy of his opinion has been the effective destruction of that same principle that they will uh, espouse in the abstract. Now, McCulloch famously proclaimed that we must never forget that
that it is a constitution, we are expounding. The sonorous aphorism is frequently, if unnecessarily and improperly, often taken to mean that it is merely a constitution which judges are free or obligated to amend under the guise of interpretation. That attitude has triumphed historically and perhaps irrevocably. Constitutional law is widely regarded now as a branch of political philosophy or as a field on which to play junior varsity statesmen or, not infrequently, an area for flamboyant moral posturing or a weapon of partisan warfare. Rather than submissively celebrate these developments, we could choose to stop forgetting that the Constitution was originally meant to be a law, and that it was meant to be more authoritative than what the Supreme Court says about it. If we did, McCulloch and his rake progeny would become controversial once again, just as they very much should. Well, I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today on Categorical Imperatives. Uh, if you liked the video, go ahead and hit the thumbs up button. If you disliked it, I guess hit the thumbs down button. Uh, if you want to leave me a comment, I really do love hearing from you guys in the comment section uh, what you thought about the video, uh, just any thoughts about it, any questions you may have about the case, uh, anything you think I got wrong. Uh, which I got nothing wrong, but I'm willing to listen to you explain why I'm wrong if you like. Um, uh, um, yeah, anyways, yeah, just leave me a comment if you feel like it. Uh, and if you want to support the show uh, financially, there are links down in the description to where you can go do that. Uh, over on Patreon, there's some extra goodies that you get for signing up over there for as little as two bucks a month. And if you're not in a place to do that right now, that's totally cool. Uh, I still always appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here with me today all the same. So I guess all that's left to do is sign out. This has been me, Locking Liberal, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about Mick McCulloch versus Maryland. And of course, as always, De Lenda S. Cartago.